Good to be with you, TC3. Now, the other day I was driving with Carol, and we were heading to go get coffee, and I, she's doing something on her phone, and I clipped the curb. And so that rattled her world. So then we start coming towards the church. I almost hit a car. That didn't help at all. And then after that, we got to the church, and I rammed it into the parking stop, backing it up. Now, you could have assumed that I was a bad driver, but you'd be wrong. I was just having a bad day. I looked over and I said, just, I said, babe, just a bad driving day. It's just a bad driving day for me. So I say all that to say this. Have you ever, have you ever gone through a bad season? A bad season where you were making choices and one choice led to another bad choice and another bad choice and it wasn't you just made a mistake. You found yourself kind of in a lifestyle that you never really wanted to be in and when you looked in the mirror you didn't like what you saw at all and you were stuck there and you didn't know how to get out of that position or situation. And what I would say is we've all found ourselves in that kind of season. We all have. But by the grace of God, and because of the grace of God, we are where we are today. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't treat us like our sins deserve? Aren't you thankful that he's merciful and and gracious and understanding and, and has all those attributes that he pours out on us on a, on a daily basis. Today we're going to talk about where we find ourselves sometimes in life, where we're facing the ugly consequences of, of bad decisions. Some of us today, we might be facing the ugly consequences of some bad decisions that we've made. And we're in this series uh, called Questions That Jesus Asked. And he asks this question of a woman who had made a ton of bad decisions and found herself in a really bad spot in John chapter 8. And the question that he asks her is, where, where are your accusers? He asks her that question. It's spoken out of, heart, out of a heart of love because she's in a life or death situation. She doesn't know whether she's going to live or die. And religious people are coming at her. And many of us, we understand that because there's perhaps some church hurt in our life. If you've ever been in, uh, in church, and if you've been in church for a while, there's probably an uncomfortable conversation that's happened. Some of you, you may have found yourself here because you were hurt by a, by a bad church experience. And what I would say is, Sometimes that hurt comes as a result of people who actually, they do have good intentions. They just don't know how to kind of help people along. And they don't speak the truth in love, or they speak at the wrong time, or they're not the person to speak it, and, and, and hurt happens. And I've been hurt by people who have, who have been in the church world. And unfortunately, there are way too many people that have been hurt by religious people. Some of them have been hurt unintentionally, and some of them have been hurt by people that are just plain self-righteous. And if that's you, if you've been hurt by someone in the church or by the church as a whole, I, I know I'm not the person, and I know I can't go back to the situation, but what I would like to say to you is, is I apologize on behalf of the church. I wish that situation would have gone differently for you. I wish maybe that person would have spoken to you 
in a way that would have been helpful and healing. And I would love for you to embrace the freedom that Christ has for you as we kind of, kind of unpack this passage of Scripture. Unfortunately, church people can be, at times, mean and vicious. Every believer has to keep in check this self-righteous sin that we all suffer from, from time to time. It creeps out. There was a guy who had come and visited our church, and he was leaving the service, and he was looking for someone to discuss church life with. Um, that would be another way of saying complain. And so he sought, out, he sought out the resident complaint department, which apparently is my wife. Um, and so he was talking to Carol, and he said these words to her. He said, you guys are doing church wrong. You need to take a vote. And I'll bet you some things would come out. You're doing church the wrong way. And my wife, if you knew her, she's, she's a picture of meekness. Like she is strength under control. She's not weak, but she's very soft-spoken. And she looked at him and she said, listen, we vote every single week. People vote with their feet. And the people are coming here. And this place is growing because the people like what God is doing here. And so then she said, she said these words, and I was like, you said what? She said, that makes me wonder why you're still here. I was like, wow, that's aggressive, girl. But listen, the self-righteous, they're really good, really good at spotting how others could do things better. They're really good at spotting the sin and others' people's lives, and they're, they're pretty much oblivious to the sin in their own, own eye or own life. And you think about the, the plank in the eye versus the dust in, in the other. And if you say you've never been guilty of the sin of self-righteousness, you're guilty right now. And if you think this talk is for someone else, it's not. We all suffer from this issue, and we all need to keep this issue in check, in John chapter 8, Jesus encounters this woman. She's caught in adultery and exposes the sin of self-righteousness in the religious leaders. It also gives believers a really good example to follow when you're dealing with people that are, that are caught by the trap of sin and are in a broken, broken state. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. The religious leaders are looking for a way to discredit him. He's growing in popularity, and it says, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they bring this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Adultery, sleeping with someone else's spouse, in case you didn't know that. Think about this woman. Think about the fact that the darkest secret that she had in her life is now exposed publicly for the world to know and to hear about. How would you like it if you were brought before a crowd of people and your deepest and darkest sins were exposed? Your deepest and darkest worst moments in the worst season of life that you have. I think about her and I think one is she's somebody's kid. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's sister. She's loved by probably a best friend. 
This is in this circle that is actually really small because the, the community of life that people lived back in that time was very communal. Imagine her shame as she's in this more of a small town environment to where when she would walk down the street, people would whisper. They wouldn't necessarily address her, but they would whisper. She didn't get invited to certain things, and she's feeling the shame of where she is in life. She never intended to be where she was in life. Think about her embarrassment. She knows that she's an embarrassment to her family because she was raised to to live a moral lifestyle, but yet she found herself in a position where her life was very immoral. Imagine her pain. She is the other woman, and she hates herself. I think about this issue of self-righteousness, and it creeps in. People appoint themselves as judge and jury. Self-righteous people, they never seem to be encouraging. They seem to be people who appoint themselves to some position of authority. I remember a, a while back, I had a guy, and he was fairly new to the church, and he came to me and he said, listen, pastor, he said, my job is to help keep pastors humble. And I said, you should find another job. You know, self-righteous people, they appoint themselves. And when you think about this issue, they're throwing this woman in front of Jesus, in front of a crowd, they're airing her dirty laundry, and this is not about the woman. Self-righteous and self-centered people, they use people. She's not in a position where they're trying to help her at all. They're using her as as a pawn. Teacher, they said. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, the law of Moses. They're really good, self-righteous people are really good at using the law. The law of Moses says that we ought to stone her. What do you say? So here's the deal. Back in that time, there was this rule of law, specifically speaking of those caught in the act of adultery. This is going back to the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, verse number 22, it talks about they should be put to death. So like the the old covenant was very, very strong when it came to this issue of sexual immorality, specifically adultery. But it said in the text of scripture that both parties needed to pay the price. She's caught in the act of adultery, check. Both parties need to pay the price. There's no dude there. Goes further. Accusations had to be formalized on paper. This was not a formalized accusation. Two or three witnesses would have to appear before the great Sanhedrin, this council that they had, and they would be able to judge this issue as being valid or invalid. The two or three witnesses weren't present. The Sanhedrin also decides capital cases. This is actually a capital case. And the accusers were the ones who were to throw the first stone should this thing move forward. None of this is happening. They just drag this woman from wherever she was and they throw her at the feet of Jesus without mercy. They throw her in front of the crowd and they use her as a pawn because it says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. That's what self-righteous people, they, they try to use words against you. I remember having a conversation with a, a guy a, a while back, and 
He was stating his position. I was stating my position. He was very passionate about his position. I was very firm in my position. And it got to this place where I just kind of stopped and I said, hey, listen, you have spoken what you wanted to speak and I listened to it. Now we're at that point in the conversation where you're just waiting for me to say something that you can hang on or, or that I get wrong so that we can continue this thing. And I said, I'm not going to do it. This conversation needs to stop. And that's what self-righteous people do. They try to trap people. And that's what they're trying to do with Jesus here. And you think about this background, the context of this passage of Scripture. Israel was under Roman authority at the time. Rome had invaded the nation of Israel. They were, they were in charge in regards to being the authority. And the Jewish governing body of the Sanhedrin, 71 men who would lead and rule, they had had their power stripped away from them by Caesar. So they used to be able to decide cases like this, but they couldn't anymore. And so the Jewish people were being ruled over by Rome, and the, the great Sanhedrin, they had limited civil authority. This is an allegiance or an alliance trap they're trying to get Jesus in or caught in. If the Jewish people follow their own laws, they were overstepping war Roman authority. This question puts Jesus at odds with either Roman authority or else Jewish civil authority. So he's in the middle. And that's often where we as followers of Christ, we find ourselves kind of trapped in the middle between what the text of Scripture has to say and where culture is. So it's challenging to manage that, uh, that tension that's there in the middle. If Jesus condemns her, he clashes with the Romans. If he doesn't condemn her, he clashes with the Jewish people. And so they think that they've gotten Jesus. Let's not be gotcha kind of people. Let's be solution-oriented people. The self-righteous, they think they've trapped Jesus. They think there's only two positions, their position and the wrong position. We really need to avoid unreasonable extremism. Let's try to avoid my way or the wrong way. Too often that's happened in the, in the context of the church when we should be known for our love. Because when you think about this situation, a woman's life is literally at stake. And when we deal with people in an unhealthy manner, their spiritual condition is literally at stake. And we have to be very careful how we handle God's kids. This culture, it promotes extremism. You say, I love this. Well, then you can't love that. You say, I support this. Well, then you can't support that. If you say, I support social justice and I support racial equality, then you must be someone who can't support law enforcement. Yes, you can. That's ridiculous. If you say you're pro-life, oh, well, then you must be against women's rights. No, you're not. That's ridiculous. If you say you love Popeye's chicken, you can't love Chick-fil-A. Yes, you can, and I do. You can't, you're not taking that away from me. I'm just telling you, and I'll go on record, the Popeye's chicken sandwich is better than the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I know, I might have just divided the house. I know, 
I know, but don't knock it until you try it. I was on the edge for a while and then I went there and again, I said this before, if loving that is wrong, I don't wanna be right. But we do this kind of stuff, don't we? If you go to a Baptist church, then you must not fully embrace the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can. That's ridiculous. If you're from a different church, a different denomination, you must not be saved. Yes, you can be saved. For God so loved the world, he didn't send a church so that the world could be saved. He sent his son. Churches don't save people. Jesus does. Jesus is seemingly caught in this paradox where this is right. He supports the rule of Roman law. But this is also right over here. He supports the claim of Jewish law for, that defends morality. Both of these truths are truths that he sees as correct and right. So how can both of those things be right? So we find ourselves facing that battle in culture today. He seems to be stuck. He values the rule of civil government. He also values the rule of law and morality. Again, it's a tension that we manage. We can love people who are trapped in sin without endorsing the sinful behavior. We can do that, and too often the church has not. Jesus is caught between the two. It's a paradox. Two truths that seem to contradict each other, and you, you see that actually in the text of Scripture. You see issues at play in Scripture all the time where you've just got to step back and go, God's got this one figured out. I'm just going to have to embrace the truth. You look at the text of Scripture, and Scripture clearly teaches the sovereignty of God, meaning that God is over all and over the affairs of man. Scripture also teaches that men and women have a free will to choose or human responsibility. And so you think about that, how can God be controlling human history while at the same time still giving people the power to choose or free will? These truths are clearly taught in the text of Scripture. Theologians have been wrestling with this issue for hundreds of years. The truth of the matter is, is that only God knows how these seemingly conflicting principles actually work together. So therefore, we accept both sides to be correct. God in his sovereignty, he did choose us, and we also chose him. The religious leaders are all, they're all wound up. They think Jesus is trapped. It's got to be one way or the other. And here's what Jesus does, and this is genius. He, he stoops down and he writes in the dust with his finger. A lot of people have kind of given their opinion about what Jesus wrote in the sand. And there's some really great opinions on it. Some think that he was writing the names of, of uh, the sins that the people around had committed. And so therefore, you know, he was exposing them. Well, scripture doesn't tell us. We don't have a clear picture of what Jesus was writing in the sand. But here's what we do know. Without stretching the text, we know that Jesus is creating some space right here because it's a tense moment. The crowd is like, what are you gonna do? And the religious people are like, you've got to condemn her. And then Jesus is there and he just stoops down and he starts writing in the sand. 
And he's creating this space between emotion and response. And when it's heated, we need to be people who create space between emotion and response. He's giving everybody this moment to pause and think about what they're doing. Because at the end of the day, a woman's life is at stake. She is the most important thing on his mind at that moment. So the question that I have as I kind of look through this is how do we respond to no-win situations in a wound-up culture? How does this relate to us today? One is we speak the truth in love or we don't speak at all. Like I remember having a conversation with somebody early on in the life of the church, and I respected this guy greatly. He'd invested heavily into the life of the church. He was raising a godly family and doing godly things. And he had a conversation with me. He took me out to lunch and he said, Gordon, we're leaving the church. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I just don't think that when you present that you're authentic enough, that you're real enough. And I stepped back from that conversation and here's what I knew. That as he was presenting that, he was having a really hard time presenting that. He was having a really hard time presenting that because I knew that as he was presenting it, he loved me. I knew that he loved the church as well, and I knew that this was a very, very difficult thing for him. And as we stepped back from that conversation, I went, man, I need to process that. But we stepped back from that conversation. He went his way and I went my way, but I can tell you where we are today. If he walked into the doors of this church, I would be excited to see him here. I would be excited to see him part of ministry here. When I see him in the community, I'm excited to see him and I want to know how his family's doing. Why? Because he spoke the truth to me in a way that I could hear it, and he spoke it in love. Too often, too often we don't speak the truth in love. How do we speak or respond to people who are wound up in culture? We seek wisdom before we start talking. Talks about this in James chapter 1, verse number 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Because a lot of the situations that we're facing really require wisdom beyond our own understanding. If you're trying to bring course correction into somebody else's world, you need God's wisdom. You need the Holy Spirit's timing, and you need the Holy Spirit's uh, um, power in your life before you approach that situation. Because it says in here, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God, and he gives it generously. And Jesus, in that moment, he quiets the noise. And sometimes in our situations, we need to take time and allow the noise to be quieted. Just because someone wants to forcefully engage you, it doesn't mean that you have to forcefully engage them. It says very clearly in the text of Scripture that a soft answer, it turns away wrath. And that's what Jesus is doing. How do we respond in no-win situations? We respond and we don't react. Everyone should take note of this, James said. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why do marriages fall apart? Because someone's not quick to listen or slow to speak or slow to become angry. Because it says anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Get that. The righteous life that God desires. Jesus draws in the sand. He gives the situation time to de-escalate. So we seek wisdom, we respond, we don't react, and we speak to the heart of it. These guys are 
demanding an answer from Jesus. And so he stands up from riding in the sand. He said, all right, but let the, the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So here's my question for you. Ever sinned? I have. Have you ever sinned? Okay, good. Anybody here never sinned? Never sinned. Never sinned. This one's for you. This talk is specifically for you today. And the two of you happen to find each other, so that's a great thing. So anyway, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, examine yourself. How do you avoid self-righteousness? You remember how much God has forgiven you. You go back to that place where maybe you came to Christ in the same season I did, where I I just wasn't the best version of who God had called me to be. I was doing some things that I'm embarrassed of and I don't even talk about today. And God forgave me and he restored me and he actually uses me. And I think that's amazing because I would have shelved me. So we need to remember how much God has forgiven us and you know what? It wasn't just back then that he forgave me. He has to do it every single day because I'm a mess. I don't know about you, but every single day I rely on the mercy and the grace of God. And so that's how you avoid being self-righteous as you remember how much God forgave you and keeps on forgiving you. It says in the text of Scripture, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. In other words, if you show mercy, you'll also be shown mercy but if you forgive men, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will, it says, the Father forgive your trespasses. So this is a big deal. We ask soul probing questions. Would I want to be judged in the same manner I'm judging others? Would I want my son or my daughter to be judged in the same manner that I'm judging other people? Does my opinion about someone else need to be shared publicly without them there to defend themselves? I mean, does it really need to be shared? Am I building up the body of Christ by what I'm sharing when I talk about my opinion of somebody else? Did God call us to the ministry of stone throwing? Are we the ministers of condemnation? I think it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God's called us to the ministry of reconciliation. Like we should be first reconciled to God. We should then be working on reconciling others to God. And we as a body, we should love each other like no other body on planet Earth. And we need to remember that Jesus' mission was a rescue mission. He didn't come to the world to condemn the world. It talks about in John 3, 17. It says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came that the world might be saved. And so when the accusers heard this, He who was without sin cast the first stone. It says they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And as I read that, the thing I kept thinking about was, God, as I get older, would you make sure that I am more merciful and graceful than I've ever been in all of my life? How do we respond to no-win situations in a wound-up culture? We speak from the heart to the heart. Jesus, you got to get in this moment. Jesus is talking with this woman, and there's a crowd around her, but she must have felt like 
she was the only person in the world to him in this moment because she was literally handed a death sentence and Jesus has just rescued her, which is what he does. He rescues us from our mess. Then he stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And then she said, no, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is where the divinity of Jesus meets our humanity. He brings healing and hope to this woman who was handed a death sentence, and he calls her to this new life. Sin no more. He doesn't just pass it over and say, keep on doing what you're doing. Go and sin no more. Separating her to a life of holiness. And for some of us, we're reading this story, and I want us to ask ourselves the question, which, which one are we in the story? Are we the accuser? Have we been in this game for a really long time, and have we become a, a bit of a self-righteous bully? Are we an encourager? You remember when I talked about that guy who said his gift was to, to humble pastors? What he doesn't know about me is that I don't recover from Sunday till about Monday night. When I leave this place, I think about every single sentence that I was supposed to say that I did not. I think about every cue that was missed. I think about conversations that I didn't have. It takes me a while to get over it. And so I ask the question of all of us, are we encouragers? Are we full of the mercy of Jesus? Do we speak about hope and do we speak about life? Are we hope dealers? Do people leave conversations with us more encouraged or discouraged? More filled up or more deflated? Are you an encourager? Or are you the woman trapped in a sinful life? Some of us, that's our world right now. We're in a bad season and we, we know it. We're trying to figure out how to get free from that. You know where freedom is found? In Jesus. It's found at the feet of Jesus. You might be the woman who feels like nobody's pulling for you right now. You might hate yourself when you look in the mirror because of what you've done, what's been done to you, or what you're currently doing right now. You might feel like you don't have any friends out there in the world and you're wrestling because you don't get this whole church family experience thing. And there's a longing inside of you for freedom. You don't know how to break free, but the Spirit of God is somehow strangely, as, as Wesley's story was, warming the middle of your heart and soul. This morning in the first service, we gave people the opportunity to connect with Christ that just don't, they would say, hey, I don't have a relationship with Christ and I want to establish one. What that means is you embrace what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection as being done for you. You fully comprehend the fact that we as humans are fallen, sinful, and unrighteous, and God is righteous, and Jesus died on the cross to build that bridge so that we could be in relationship with God. And we come to God not as people who make mistakes, but as people who have sinned against God. And Jesus solves that problem. And we embrace what Jesus did, and we put God on the throne of our life so that we can then be what the Bible talks about, new creations in Christ and part of his family. The old goes away and the new springs forward. So some of us, we want that relationship. 
And so if that's you, I, I want to lead you in a quick prayer this morning to kind of start you on that journey. My prayer doesn't matter. It's your prayer that matters. It's your heart that matters. But I want to start over here in this section. If you'd say in this section, hey, would you lead me in that prayer? I need to establish a relationship with Jesus. Would you just slip up your hand if you're in that section over there? You say, hey, I need to meet Christ. I need to establish my relationship with Jesus. Anybody over there? Good. Hands going up over there in that section. This section here, you'd say, hey, good. Hands going up. I want to establish a relationship with Jesus. Here in this section, hands going up. Good. I want to establish a relationship with Jesus. This is the most important day of your life. This section here, I want to establish a relationship with Jesus. Hands going up here. Good. This section here. Good. Hands going up everywhere. Good. This section here. Good. Hands back there. Excellent. Church, let's pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, would you come? Hey, church, let's pray this like we mean it, okay? Dear Jesus, would you come? Would you take control of my life from this day forward? I choose you over the world. Forgive me of my sins and heal my life. I embrace what Jesus did on the cross as being done for me. The old is gone and the new springs forward. Today I am a new creation in Christ, fully surrendered to you. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for the seed of the gospel that was planted. I pray that it would grow and take over their lives. I pray that the word of God would speak directly to them as they read it. I pray that we as a church would encourage people that are growing in their faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit, when they're driving in their car, would just speak to them. And I pray that your voice would be louder than any other in their head. And I pray that they would remember that the old is gone. The new springs forward. They are a new creation in Christ, part of an eternal family, Father. Let what is done today, Father, register in their hearts and their lives. And may they feel the Father's love from the top of their head to the, to the bottom of their feet. In Jesus' name we pray and receive. Amen. Have people come to Christ today. Welcome to the family.